You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, church. You guys are awesome. You're awake for fall break. Well done. So if you're visiting with us today, I apologize because we've been praying all week that God would bring you here. And so if you had to get up early to make it, I'm glad you responded. I'm just kidding. I'm not really apologizing. I'm super glad you're here. But we've been praying for you all week. We're really glad you're here. And I think God has something in store special just for you. We've been going through the book of Genesis. Don't worry about that. There's a lot of names and people in places. It would be easier to go back and listen to the messages and catch up later. But you'll be able to follow enough of today. Let's start here for a minute. When I was a younger man, a little less gray in the hair. In fact, I couldn't even grow a beard in those days. I was 13 years old. I broke my pelvic bone at a school dance. I was showing off and I thought I was super cool and I really kind of was super cool, at least in my own mind. And my hamstring split my pelvic bone in two. And that took me out of many of the sports that I could play at the time, running and basketball and football and baseball and all the things pretty much. And uh, so when then about eight months later, my dad got a new job and we moved to schools when I was a freshman in high school, about three months in to my freshman year. Now we moved to a little place called Talmadge, Ohio. Probably never heard of it. It's right outside of Akron, Ohio. And uh, at one point, Talmadge, Ohio was known in Trivial Pursuit as the most churches per capita in the world. And that seemed like a good thing for a kid who grew up as a Christian kid at a Christian home, except that when I got there, I found out it's like every other small town in America And uh, you're either in or you're out, and I was out. And the problem was, now that I couldn't play the sports I used to play, I didn't have an identity, and I didn't know how to fit in. And those first, really, couple years were so difficult, painful. I I, I literally went through undiagnosed depression. I mean, it it was a sad, sad season. And what I felt the most was like, nobody saw me. Nobody cared that I existed. Nobody even knew that I was there. So... Maybe your story isn't a broken hip or sports or whatever, but have you ever felt unseen, unimportant, or insignificant? Maybe for you it was you've been working hard and you, did, you got overlooked for a promotion at a job. Maybe for you it's a boyfriend or girlfriend situation, and no matter how hard you try, they always seem to notice someone else. Maybe for you there's a sadness and heaviness in your heart with that question because for you it's your spouse, and you just feel like they don't care. They notice everybody and everything else. They don't really pay attention to you at all. Maybe for some of you, it's a heaviness of the kids, right? And they just, they, they, they've got their own lives and they've moved on. What I know is I'm shocked by the messages, the phone calls, the emails, the texts, the conversations I'm having with people, even just since the last service, as people are just hearing this and God is ministering to them. What we're, we're gonna see today is God has a message for all of us and it's gonna come through the eyes of a lady that we don't talk a lot about in scripture. Her name is Leah. She's a very important character in the big arc of scripture, but because of her story, we tend to miss her. So let's go ahead and pick it up. We'll be in the book of Genesis if you're happening to be reading along in your own Bible, chapter 29. And here's the setup. So basically, we got our hero, and I use that term very loosely, but our hero in the story, his name is Jacob, and his mom told him, you need to leave, because Jacob has tricked his brother Esau out of the birthright, and he's tricked his daddy out of the blessing. And if you haven't been with us last two weeks, you may not know the weight of why those two things are important, but basically, his brother Esau is out for him, has said, I'm going to kill you. So his mama and his daddy said, you need to go, and mom says, why don't you go to Laban, my brother's house? Go to that distant land and just stay there until your brother calms down. Then you can come back home. Well, it's going to be a long time, probably almost 20 years, give or take. It's going to be a long time. 
But we're gonna one, two, skip a few, and now we're gonna pick up where he finally ends up in the vicinity of Laban's area. He doesn't even know exactly where he's going, how to get there, where they are. Uh, I finally got a vision for this when I went to Israel in February, first time ever this year. And I was in the Sea of Galilee area, which isn't perfect, but we drove around. And you, you do, you can literally see for miles. So you could imagine like back in the day, you might see a gathering of people out way, 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 miles and miles and miles and miles away, but you're nowhere close to them. So you just start going that way and hoping that's right. I can see how it kind of unfolded a little. Well, he shows up and he shows up at a well, Jacob does. And we're gonna talk about that story next week because we're gonna look at Rachel and the story. But what we find is he finally finds Laban's house. And he's like, he doesn't have anything really with him at all. It's just himself and what he's got with him on his back. And so Laban, his uncle, is like, hey, come and live with me, and you can work for me. And finally, after about a month, Laban comes to him and is like, what, what can I do for you? You shouldn't just work for me for free. So here's where our story is going to pick up. Genesis 29, verse 17. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. We'll get to that in a second. And the name of the younger was Rachel. We'll talk about her next week. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years and return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, let's come back to this drama for a minute. First of all, again, Rachel's next week, but Rachel is stunning. She's beautiful. She's beautiful to look at. She's beautiful in form. She's got it going on. She's a bit of a diva, but we'll talk about that. Leah, however, had weak eyes. Now, the Hebrew here is interesting. It literally means delicate eyes, but we don't know why it means it. There's three main kind of translations that have been used through rabbis and professors and scholars over the years. I honestly think it's probably some form of all three. Here's your three options, ready? Option number one, and this is what the rabbis said for years, but option number one, uh, Leah is just, her eyes are dull to look at. There's just nothing impressive. Whatever it is about Rachel, she's got a sparkle in her eyes, and Leah's eyes are just kind of dull. So imagine a culture where most of you is covered. You've got to protect from the sand and the wind. And a lot of times, even your whole face is covered, not just your face, but perhaps even your mouth and your nose. And it's COVID, except for this is life for them, right? I just made that part up. Anyway, and so what do you see the most? their eyes. And so how expressive you are with your eyes communicates a lot. So it's quite possible Rachel had beautiful, lovely eyes. She looked like a Disney princess or something. And Leah's eyes were just, eh, they weren't anything special to look at. So then you're drawing attention to Rachel's eyes and not to Leah's eyes. I think that's the weakest of the possibilities. The second one could make more sense. There could be something physically wrong with her eyes that's created a quagmire, a problem here. There could be she's extremely nearsighted, extremely farsighted. Perhaps she's blind. Perhaps she has some physical disability. Maybe one eye doesn't work or she has a, a lazy eye or something like that. But it's something where, again, if you have a focus on the face in that culture because the body is covered from head to toe most of the time and there's this emphasis on your eyes and her eyes, there's something wrong with them. There would be an impact for that. And not only that, but what we see in this story that we kind of left out, we'll talk more about next week, is Rachel's doing shepherding. It probably means Laban doesn't have any sons. So he's got two daughters. And if one of them has something physically wrong with her eyes, there's a lot of things she can't do to help the family. But not only that, she's not a desired commodity, if you want to look at it that way. And Laban has the responsibility to marry her off. And he can't marry her off because nobody wants her, which leads to the third option. And I think two and three go together, even if one is apart. Given how much emphasis is placed on Rachel's beauty, it's quite possible Leah is just not the most physically attractive person. And that's gonna be super relevant. What we're going to see now through the rest of this chapter and through the rest of Leah's story arc is this play on words 
between her sight and whether her husband sees her and is God paying attention. And it's a really cool way to tell the story, especially if you can relate with Leah. Laban said, well, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man, so stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel. There's this whole thing on sevens I don't have time to go into, but in the Bible, the number seven means completeness or wholeness. And we see it over and over and over again. I won't even go through them all here. I've done it in other sermons, but there's a reason. And, and what it's showing you is that Jacob loved her completely. He wholly loved Rachel. He wanted her. In fact, we see that here. But they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. And all, can't we just say it all? Come on now. Men, I just want to coach you real quick. I don't care how long you've been with the lady you're with right now. I highly recommend you use this one later today. Just go home and look at her, baby. It's, I know it's been three years, but it seems like only a day because of my love for you. I know it's been, for me, it's been 23 years since we've been married, baby. But baby, honey, she's sitting up there. I love you so much. It seems like only a day. Some of you, you know, it's been 40. Okay, 40 is a long time, you know. But anyway, you get the point, right? You get the point. Go home, men. Use this. The only problem is, where is that attention going? It's going to who? Rachel. And we're looking at Leah. Well, why is that relevant? The time has come. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed. He's worked his seven years. So in one verse, we just skip seven years. And I want to make love to her. Nothing could make her feel more valued, I'm sure, than this statement, right? <laughs> we'll talk about that next week. But so Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. It was common in that day, even in Jesus' day, when they would do a wedding feast, there would be this big kickoff celebration, and then there would be a week of festivities. If you all thought Bridezilla's today spent way too much energy and effort planning a few hours, you have no idea what it was like back then. But it was a special day with lots of things going on and a big hoopla, and so there'd be a big meal and a big feast and a big gathering, and everybody would come, and then at the end of that, they would consummate the marriage. And those two acts together, this public commitment and confession, where they probably didn't say, till death to us part, I do, like we do today, but that's what we do. Back then, they had something, some form of a ceremony, and it was consummated that night. And it's not the focus of today, but I'm going to throw it out there. It is super important to this story and for us. The biblical theme from beginning to end is that God would bring one man and one woman together, and they would hold themselves in purity and in sexuality until the night of their wedding, after they have committed in front of other people, I will marry this person. Then they would come together and consummate the marriage. And the consummating of the marriage was the signing of the contract. It is what sealed the deal. This is such a big deal through the scriptures. I realize our culture today has flipped it all upside down. It's like you gotta try before you buy kind of thing. But what's going on in the Bible, when people say, well, show me the passage, pastor, that says I have to wait until I'm married, it is all over. You just have to read your Bible. It's just that it didn't say it in a way that gave you no wiggle room. And so you go, well, see, it didn't say it. It says it. This is so critical to our understanding of Scripture that it's going to change the way the story that we're about to read unfolds. Because after they have consummated their marriage, the two have become one flesh. And what that means is when the two have come together in this way, it is supposed to be a gift enjoyed between a husband and a wife where now they are committing their lives together with each other. And everybody in here knows this. If you've ever been in a relationship and you started to get intimate before the marriage, it only makes the relationship more complicated, doesn't it? 
It makes things more emotional. Like, are we doing this? Are we not doing this? Is he in? Is she in? I don't know what's happening here. Like, we, we have this intimate thing we shared together. It's because God created this gift for it to be shared between two people inside the covenant of marriage so they would draw them nearer to each other and they could express and experience love and in all the things that Jacob's feeling towards Rachel. All right, let's move on now for our time's sake. But when evening came, so all the festivities and whatever it is they do, and the, you know, opa, and they broke the plates, I don't know what they did, whatever they did, the marriage just happened and they're about to consummate. So Laban took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. Did you read that? Or are you just caught up in all the things I've said and you missed it? He just worked seven years. All day long, he's been doing wedding feasts, and whatever happened at a wedding feast thousands of years ago in ancient Hebrew cultures, whatever. Rachel is the one that everybody thinks he's marrying. But that night, he didn't make love to Rachel. He made love to her sister, older sister, oh, weak eyes. <laughs> now, you might ask yourself the question, how did that happen? That's a great question. It doesn't really tell us. You got three primary options that are used to describe this, and it's probably some form of all of them or portion of a combination of them. Number one, it was late at night and it was a dark room. Number two, Jacob was probably well inebriated at this point. And number three, she probably had a veil over her face in some way or another. And it isn't until later. So we get this little verse, verse 24, which is relevant to the rest of the story. We'll talk a little bit about next week. But Laban gave a servant, Zilpah, to his daughter as her attendant. So that's just a little side note that becomes relevant later. When morning came, though, there was Leah. Oops. So Jacob goes to Laban. You know, he's imagine him gathering his stuff and like, hey, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Now this is super important because what we see now is Laban, who is the dad. Laban's going, I didn't have any choice, Jacob. See, in our culture, it's my responsibility to marry off my daughter, and I'm not supposed to marry off my younger daughter before I marry off my older daughter, but my older daughter has got the weak eyes, and nobody wants to marry her. And so you could still have Rachel. It's just that I had to solve this problem. Laban replied, it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish the daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. This guy is good. 14 years, 14 years for one woman, and it felt only like a day. <laughs> and Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave, him, gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant, and Jacob made love to Rachel also. Now, before we go into the next verse, which is so key, do you think there's gonna be any tension in this home? Now, see, it's easy to read these stories and think these things are so weird, but there's some things we can extrapolate, right? Before we get into the deep, deep meaning for us spiritually today, let's just extrapolate some things. I've been asked the question, why is it in the Old Testament that we see kings and leaders and men have multiple wives, but today it's not okay? In fact, I literally just saw a video from a former NFL quarterback saying this seems to be the normative pattern. 
that a man needs more than one woman, and we see it in the Old Testament. I'm not gonna say his name because I saw a snippet and I thought, just please tell me that somebody is explaining this to him. So let me explain it to you. So in case you should see such a video, you don't have to wonder such things. While the Bible tells us and describes for us about men having multiple wives in the Old Testament, two things are important for us today. Number one, every time we see it, it's chaotic and it creates problems. It is never good, never good. And when Jesus is asked about marriage in the New Testament, in books like Mark and Luke and Matthew, he goes back before we see multiple marriages, all the way back to the very beginning with just Adam and just Eve, and he says, one man, one woman for life. That's how God created it. When God is joined together, let no one separate. Jesus always takes us back to the ideal and says, look, I realize we live in a broken world where broken things happen, and God intersects the broken world and deals with the broken world as he's given it. Nevertheless, his ideal, what he desires is one man, one woman for life. Then Paul, later on, writing after Jesus, says the exact same thing and says one man, one woman for life. This is why we believe that this is what God desires, what God longs for, and what we should be fighting to protect and when we see it in this story, Laban creates a whole bunch of problems in the world by doing this. In fact, the very next verse says, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. Your heart should break for Leah. Your heart should truly break for her. What is it like to be in a marriage let me back up. What is it like to be in a culture, in a community where you're unseen, you're unknown, you're unnoticed, you're unaccepted? I mean, whatever is going on with Leah's eyes, is it even her fault? What if she was born this way or when she was a kid, some tragedy, some accident happened? Is it even her fault? See, one of these verses, God says when he chooses King David, he says, man loves to look at the outside, but God loves to look at the heart. And the challenge in that is for us to become a people who stop looking at the outside, but start looking at the heart. But yet, come on, don't we live in a society that says all that matters is what's on the outside? But think about the multi-millions that are spent on the outside. I don't know, I can't, I don't know if we're the first culture in the world, but it sure seems like we're one of the first cultures in the world, in the history of the world, to spend multi-millions literally, plastically fixing our bodies to look a certain way. I've read multiple quotes from multiple men and multiple women over the last few months, because I'm always reading these things, like Zac Efron when he did the Baywatch movie, and he talked about doing permanent physical damage to his body because he had to starve himself and work out so many hours a day to get a certain physique, but yet we watch that movie, we think, man, I've got to attain that. I watched an interview with, and I don't remember which, which lady it was now, but she was a, a model back when I was a kid, and she was talking about these magazine covers and how she had to work out and starve herself for weeks on end to get that specific look, and that look wasn't even good enough. They airbrushed and touched up that picture to make her look it away. She's like, nobody could look that way. Even I didn't look that way. But this is the world we live in. Now, what's it like to be Leah to not only live in a world where you're celebrated for your outward beauty, whatever exactly that means, and now you're in a marriage with a man who can't see you because he can only see your sister. And when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. But Rachel remained childless. And we'll talk about this more next week, a little bit. So I don't wanna go there right now. This may bring up all kinds of questions you have. Me too. 
And I don't have all your answers. But what answers I do have, what little I do have, you need to come back for next week because we don't have time for that right now. So Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Oh, and that doesn't break your heart. Do you hear her pain? She's spending a night with her husband and she finally gets pregnant and by the grace of God, she's pregnant and she's like, maybe now my husband will care about me too. Jacob never wanted this. He never asked for this. He was tricked into this. She conceived again. When she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. Oh, it just keeps going. So this one, she names him Simeon. Then again, she conceives. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, now alas, my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. He was named Levi. We're not done yet. She conceived again. She's like a baby factory. All right, I don't know what's going on here. But when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. Now, she actually doesn't stop. She just stops for a chapter and a half, which probably represents many, many years. This whole story gets very convoluted. There becomes an arms race. We'll talk a little bit about next week between her and her sister, and, and the sister takes her servant and gives it to Jacob, and she gets pregnant. And then, so Leah comes back and takes her servant and gives it to Jacob, and then she gets pregnant. And then God allows Leah to have two more children after this before Rachel has any children. And we're gonna talk about some of that next week. But the reason I say this is, as we conclude chapter 29, we see this progression in her heart. And I wanna, I'm gonna point out three major things that I really want you to take with you out of Leah's story, because most of us are gonna to struggle to truly identify with Leah's exact details. But what we can identify with in Leah's story is the uniqueness of the fact that she feels unnoticed, uncared for, unloved, unseen. And what we see is how God enters her story and tries to change the outcome in everyday life, and God still does that today. So the first thing I wanna point out to you is our health impacts the health of those we lead. Our health impacts the health of those we lead. What you're gonna see in the story as you progress forward is there is so much brokenness. Leah's kids hate Rachel's kids. They try to kill each other, bad stuff all the time. Now, I don't know exactly how all those things should have been solved, but there are moments in the stories and the stories we're told, I think that should have been handled differently. You can read it for yourself, come to your own conclusions. But one thing we know for sure is Leah is so hurt by Jacob's lack of love. She's so mad at Rachel and feeling like Rachel stole her husband. That's her conclusion. And so she ends up naming her kids these crazy things. So I reached out, I had two Old Testament professors at Bible college, and I reached out to one of them, a guy named Dr. Mark Zeese. And uh, he's actually in Israel right now filming a bunch of stuff. He's just a Hebrew scholar, uh, just a kind-hearted, loving, gentle man. And I just reached out one day, and by his grace, he was on a break, and he caught my message, and he responded. And uh, so I'm quoting him. And I didn't tell him I was quoting him, but I'm quoting him. And uh, I just said, hey, I'm seeing something in this story, something I want to point out. I'll get to that something in a minute. I said, am I seeing this right in the Hebrew? Like, you speak Hebrew, I don't. Am I seeing this right? And he said, yes, not only are you seeing this right, but 
also notice the names of the children. And I said, I think I know what you mean. What do you mean? And then he said this. This is quoting him. He said, notice Reuben's name means something like, maybe now my husband will love me. I want you to think about that for a minute. My name is Matt, Matthew. Robert Matthew, my dad was Robert Martin, so they, nick, they named me the same first name, but in order to keep things from being confused, they call me by my middle name. Please do not call me Bob or Bobby. <laughs> now everybody's going to call me Bob or Bobby. I say that because Matthew means gift from God. And my parents told me that story when I was a kid over and over and over again. I was born two months premature. I almost died, cardiac arrest, and my parents come to the hospital. My dad holding a football, and he would be crying and praying over me, and God, please spare my son's life. And all throughout my childhood, they would tell me that I was a gift from God for them. That was my identity. That's what I knew about myself. What is it like to be born and named Reuben? Maybe now my husband will love me. That's not the literal translation, but that's what she names her son off her pain. You see how the health of the parent impacts the health of the child. It's critical that we get healthy whatever it takes, that we seek after whatever help we need, that we reach out, cry out. This is why I highly recommend Christian community here in this church because you're gonna get in a circle with some other people and they ain't gonna be perfect. They might even use the word ain't in a sentence. But what you're going to find is they have experiences of wisdom and insight and things you don't have, and they're going to share that with you, and you're going to become healthier. And as you become healthier, so will those you lead. Simeon means something like, maybe not, but God listens. So maybe now my husband will love me. Maybe not, but God listens. Then we get into the next two. Levi, maybe my husband will join me now. And then Judah, eh, maybe not, but I praise God anyway. I mean, your heart breaks for Leah when you read the names in that context. But that's not the end of the story because the second point is just as important, and that is this, God loves the comeback story. God loves the comeback story. And in Leah's story, we see a comeback story. Here's how we see it. Number one, she's the unloved, unlovable, whatever is wrong with her eyes, unattractive, I don't know, woman in a culture that nobody wants anything to do with. Dad can't even find a man to take her, so he's willing to trick his nephew into sleeping with her to marry her. Y'all thought you had some issues. But she plays a critical role in the history of Israel. She ends up being the mother of six sons of the tribes of Israel. Not only six of the sons of the 12 tribes of Israel, two critically important ones, one of them, Levi. Levi, if you don't know this, when, when, when we get into the story of Exodus and they come out of slavery, out of Egypt, and they get into the promised land and God divvies up the promised land, one of the tribes, Levi, they're not allowed to get any land. Everybody else gets to an inheritance of land. Levi's not allowed to have any land. Why? Because Levi's gonna be the priests and they're gonna serve God in the temple. Leah is writing in a critical piece in God's grand plan, and she can't see it right now, but she's taking part by God's faithfulness in her story. But not only Levi, Judah. Do you know Judah? <clears throat> Have you ever heard the phrase, the lion of the tribe of Judah? Do you know who that is? His name is Jesus. This is the cool part.
part of the story. So now we got to go back and fill some of you in on what you missed. But if you go back a few generations, we get to a guy named Abraham. And God calls Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And through you, all nations will be blessed. Everybody, everywhere, through you, through your seed. And Abraham's like, I'm an old dude with no kids. And God's like, Abraham, I just need you to trust me. I'm going to take care of it in my way and in my time. Everybody who blesses you will be blessed. Everybody who curses you will be cursed. And then Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob. And Jacob, he's got these two wives. That's a little different, not dramatically different than Abraham, but a little different than what's going on here. And God is going to bring the promised Messiah through whom all nations will be blessed through Leah. The unseeable, unloved, unadored one, God said, I got you. And what that encourages us today with no matter where you are, no matter what's going on in your story, God doesn't have to be done with you yet. It's really all about, will you allow God to enter into your story? If there's no Leah, we wouldn't have Jesus. What would it look like for generations to come through you if you were to make a change today and say, God, I don't understand everything that's happening. There's things that are outside my control. I can't change what this person does. I can't change how this person sees me. I can't change how this person treats me. I can't change the situation. But what I can change is my heart. What I can change is my commitment to you, my faithfulness to you, and then let you write whatever story you want to write. And that leads us to our last point I wanna focus on today before we close. God is always seeing, always. Now, the way I want to set up this point before you, before we, we close, earlier in that story, Abraham. Abraham has this very difficult moment. Remember, when God called Abraham, he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a man of great faith. I'm going to, have you, I'm going to teach you and you learn to trust me because I'm going to bless you. Through you, all nations will be blessed. When Abraham is called by God, he's, he's like in his 70s. And by the time God finally gives him the promised son, he's in his 90s. Crazy. It took forever, it felt like. And here's the power of that. Finally, when Isaac, Abraham's son, is between 12 and 17 years old, God says, now I want you to take your son, your one and only son, the one that I promised you. I want you to take him up on a mountain and I want you to offer him to me as a sacrifice. Guys, the story is real. This is not theoretical. This is not Abraham jumping through hoops going, okay, I guess I gotta do this thing and God's gonna stop me. No, 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 this is real. Abraham has been tested by God over and over and over again and he failed most of those tests. Not all of them, though. And in this moment, Abraham goes up and he looks at his two servants and he says, hey, you guys stay here. Me and Isaac, we're gonna go up that mountain. We're gonna offer a sacrifice to the Lord and we'll come back. And uh, the servants are going, uh, where's your sacrifice? And he's like, don't worry about it. God's got it taken care of. And they get up on the mountain. And I've always wondered about this because if Isaac's between, say, 12 and 17, he's, he's, a, he's not like a little, little munchkin anymore. Like he gets up there and Isaac's like, hey, dad, I, we got the wood, we got the altar, we got, you got, you know, we got Flintstone, whatever, to start the fire. I don't know, but where's the sacrifice? And God's like, shh, shh, just, shh, you know, I got this one. Like, quit talking. Can you imagine his anxiety, his angst? And somehow he binds Isaac and puts him on the altar. Did Isaac lay down? Did he say, Isaac, I just need you to trust me, buddy. I just need you to trust me. Or did he have to like wrestle MMA style and like lift him up and put him on that thing? I have no idea. But somehow Isaac, then will tell us that part of the story. Isaac gets on the altar 
And Abraham knows he has to do this, but he believes, it says in scripture, he believes that even if he did go through and kill his son, God would return him to him. He's finally in his old age, a man of faith who knows that God can do anything. And he takes his dagger, his whatever he's got, his sword out, and he's about to plunge it into his son. And just as he's about to, the angel of the Lord comes out and says, stop, Abraham, now I know, now I know that you trust me. Now I know that you love me. You have passed this test. And suddenly a ram comes out of the thicket and he and Isaac, we'll talk later, they grab the ram and they put him on the altar and they sacrifice the ram as an offering to God. And then Abraham says this, Jehovah Jireh. Now you've been told your whole life, Jehovah Jireh means God provides. And it does, but not literally. Literally, do you know what it says? God sees. And what Abraham means when he says that is, God, I was standing on that mountain and I was about to do the thing you told me to do and I was worried. Is he watching? Is he paying attention? Is, is he even tuned into what I'm about to do? Because I know I've got to go through with it. And I know that even if I do it and, and my son dies, somehow God's going to give him back to me. I can rationalize that. But are you watching me? And then right as the moment's about to happen, stop. Now I know. Ha, 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 ha. He was watching. He was watching the whole time. He saw it all. He knew it all. Even when I wasn't sure, he held me. He had me in his hands. Now, the reason that's so powerful, because see, sometimes when we read in the English, we miss things that are in the Hebrew because we just read them. We don't know that it's there. So let me show you something. Genesis 29, 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. And it literally says, Jehovah Jireh. God is watching. And see, here's where I want to bring this home for you today. I don't know your story or what you're facing or what you're dealing with or the anxieties in your heart, the real legitimate problems that are in front of you, but I do know this. I know this. God is watching you and he's watching over you and he will not fail his children. God solved Leah's problem in the real world. It wasn't just theoretical. It wasn't just God whispering to Leah, I love you. I know your husband doesn't, but I do. God said, no, Leah, I love you so much. I'm going to solve your problem. I'm going to invite you into my story. I'm going to make you the mother of Levi and Judah and these other tribes. I'm going to meet your needs. I'm going to hope your husband changes mind and his perspective towards you. I am an active, active partner with you in this life. And until we see God that way, We'll always be trying to find a way to manipulate and control him and get him to do things that we think needs to be done. He's going, I already got you. I had you before you knew you were you. I'm watching over you. I'm protecting you. I care for you. I see you. I see you. So what I want to do right now is I just want to pray over you I'm gonna invite you, if you want, to stand. We're gonna sing a song that, for some of you may be new, but for some of you may know the song. So it's just called Jaira. And when you're singing this song, I just want you to allow the words to wash over you, to encourage you, to challenge you, to believe that God sees you. You're not alone. So draw near to him. Let me pray.
Oh, God. This realization of your name, Jehovah Jireh, has been so profoundly eye-opening to me over the last 20 years. When I first saw it in Abraham, and then two weeks ago seeing it in Leah's story, God, it was just, thank you for your faithfulness. I don't feel like I have any other words, God, except for sometimes in our lives we struggle with our faith. We believe you are calling us to something faithful, something bigger, something difficult, something scary. And God, it's hard for us because we usually could trust about the end of our own resources. That's about as far as we could see, Father. And you're calling us to go beyond that, to truly trusting in you in the everyday that you are writing a bigger story, one bigger than we can even see or know or understand. I am sure Leah had no idea that she was going to mother the tribe that would lead to Jesus. And that by her playing her part today would mean something generations, generations, centuries later. God, may we see you for who you are and may we trust that same moving work in us right here, right now. And God, if there's anything in us that is struggling to believe you in faith, God, then increase our faith that we might trust in you. And I pray for anybody in this room that is really connecting with Leah right now. Would your spirit meet them through this song and build them up and encourage them in the great and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.